If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity, and it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM, and I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Patrick Surrey. He is the chief data scientist at Hopper. He holds a PhD in math and statistics from the University of Edinburgh. Welcome to the show, Patrick. Oh, it's great to be here. Uh, I'd like to start our uh, journey off with the same question for most guests, which is, what is artificial intelligence? And specifically, why is it artificial? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think there's a bunch of different takes you get from from different people about that. I, I guess the way I think about it in a, a kind of pragmatic sense of trying to get computers to mimic the way that that humans think, um, you know, about problems that are not necessarily easily broken down into a series of methodical steps to, to solve. So really, it's getting computers to think like humans? What does that mean? Or is it getting computers to solve problems that humans used only humans used to be able to solve? Yeah, so I, I think for me the the way that AI started was this whole I- idea of of trying to understand how we could mimic human thought processes. You know, so thinking about playing you know chess as an example, that we were trying to understand. It was hard to write down how a human played chess, but we wanted to make a machine that could you know mimic that human ability. Um, and, you know, interestingly enough, as we build these machines, we often come up with different ways of solving the problem that are nothing like the way a human actually solves the problem. Um, yeah, I mean, isn't that kind of almost the norm in a way? Because why do you, th- I mean, taking something pretty simple, why is it that you can train a human with a sample size of one? You know, this is a, an alien. Now find this alien you know, in these photos. And even if the alien's like upside down or half obscured or underwater, we're like, there, 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 and there. But why can't computers do that? Yeah, so it will. And I think computers are getting better at, at those kinds of problems. I think humans have a whole set of, you know, not greatly understood pattern matching abilities that we've actually, you know, trained and evolved over, you know, thousands of years. Um, and and trained since we were born as individuals that kind of limit the kinds of problems and the way that we solve problems, but do it in a a really interesting way that allows us to solve the kind of practical problems that we're actually interested in as a species to be able to, you know, survive and eat and find a mate and those kinds of things. You know, it's interesting because you're right. It took us a long time, but it shouldn't take computers nearly that long, right? They're, they're, they're moving at the speed of light, right? Like if, if it takes a toddler five years, won't we eventually be able to train a, a blank slate of a computer in five minutes? Yes, and I think you're starting to see evidence of, of that now, right? If, you know, I think we've, we sort of started from a different place with computers, right? We started with this very predictable step-by-step kind of binary um, system, right? Which was, we could show mathematically, you could solve any kind of well-formulated mathematical problem. And then we decided, hey, this universal computing device, it would be cool if we could make it solve the kinds of problems that 
that humans solve, but it's almost like we started from the wrong place in a sense that, you know, if you were trying to mimic humans, maybe we should have gone a lot further down the, the analog computing path instead of trying to build everything on top of this sort of binary computer, which it, you know, doesn't really match the, the underlying hardware of a human very well. Right. We're massively parallel and a computer is just sequentially enormously fast. And, and I guess those aren't, you know, necessarily. Uh, yeah, I think, well, and also this, this sort of digital versus analog thing is, is uh, always interesting, right? That, you know, the way human brains seem to work is with lots of, you know, gradients of electricity and chemicals um, that is, is very different from this sort of fundamental unit of a computer, which is this zero or one bit, right? And I think when you look at, a lot of the recent work that's being done in, you know, computer vision um, and these generative networks and so forth. The, the starting point is, first of all, to construct something that looks a lot more analog and a lot more like things that you find in someone's brain out of these fundamental units that, you know, we, we originally built in, in the computer. You know, records, LPs, they're analog and CDs came along and they're digital. Do you think people can tell the difference between the two when they listen to them? I certainly cannot. <laughs> I can't either. And yet, I, I think maybe it's my own shortcoming. I don't know. Because, you know, that's a, a digital, not an approximation of an analog experience. It's beyond an approximation to me, at least. But anyway, I could be... Uh, there I are could, certain I, people I know who claim that they, you know, that they can tell the differences. And, I, you know, I think it's like with a lot of things. We've got to a point where you have a, a really high fidelity approximation that you can't really tell is different. But, you know, you look back at the early days of, of television or the first computer monitor that I think I had way back in the day with my Apple II or whatever it was, you know, that there were four colors and you could individually see every box on the screen as a little pixel. You know, now you have an 8K TV and it if you're not within about an inch of the screen, it looks like a completely continuous, you know, right. Right. And it, it, it's sort of to that thing that I think with the, the CD, once you get to a certain level of digital approximation, it may not be the most efficient, but you can trick most of the people. Right. So do you think a general intelligence is possible? Yeah. I, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm in that camp that it certainly feels and looks like, a lot of the things that we're starting to be able to do now with um, with computers is is being pretty close to replicating things that we thought were uniquely solvable, um, you know, by people. You know, and chess has always fascinated me. I've been a you know a big fan of the of both you know playing chess, but also the advances in how computers play the game and. You know, I, I guess in the early days of, of computers, we were using all these tricks that played the game in a completely different way than, than humans think about it. But now we're getting to a point where it's not clear that anymore the, the computer is really playing a, a different game. You know, you, you read the, the latest books by Kasparov, and it's fascinating to see how, you know, he thinks about it as the, you know, the first person to, to lose to a, a machine. Um, and, and now these really interesting hybrids, you know, the, the most powerful chess players are these kind of hybrid teams where you have a, one or more people paired with uh, their favorite computer and they can beat both the best people and the best computers individually.
That's Kasparov's thing. I, I, I don't know if you remember he famously said that, you know, right after he lost, he said, well, at least uh, Deep Blue didn't enjoy beating me. Uh, <laughs> and so I guess that's my question is, will we get a computer that will enjoy at some point that will enjoy beating you? Yeah, I think maybe that depends on what you mean by enjoy. You know, I, th I think we're still, you know, we're still at baby steps that even in these areas where a computer is doing something that's hard to distinguish from a human, it's, it's working in a very narrow kind of space, right? So in some sense, you know, it's, it's enjoying the fact that it can win because it's getting feedback about the moves that it makes and the previous games that it plays. That's how it, it trains itself, right? By getting this, this positive reinforcement. But, you know, we wouldn't, say that that was a, an enjoyment because it's not part of this bigger holistic organism. But, you know, it feels like as you make these machines more and more kind of general purpose thinking machines that, you know, it, it will start to exhibit some of the things that we might identify now as, as these kind of emotional responses. It's, it's kind of a generalized feedback mechanism that it's, you know, it's winning. Well, let me ask a different form of a different, of, of the same question maybe, which is, you know, the way we are having success with AI right now is we say, let's take a lot of data about the past and let's study it and let's make projections into the future. Is that a fair description of how machine learning works? Yeah, I think so. There's, I mean, there's certainly for a long time been this uh, sort of directed learning where we're presenting lots of historical examples and, and uh, you know, a bunch of right answers and saying, you know, how can we figure out patterns in that historical data that help us guess? Right. But it's, it's all predicated on the assumption the future is like the past, right? Exactly, yeah. And this isn't my analogy. I need to figure out whose it is. But somebody pointed out that if you studied, if you fed a computer everything about the orbits of all the planets and the moons and all of that, it would be able to predict eclipses but it wouldn't ever probably come up with gravity you know it won't it can take a bunch of data about past things and make projections about future things but it doesn't understand necessarily what's going on is is that fair yeah i don't know if i agree totally with the gravity thing i mean i think you can you know again if you have a, a rich enough data set about positions of objects and movements of objects you can start finding these kind of simplified patterns. I mean, all the gravity is just a bunch of equations. That's a simpler way. Well, let me, let me say it slightly different. How about this? A human could answer the question, what would happen if Mars disappeared overnight? How would things change? Right. Or if the moon disappeared, how would things change? But if all you've got is data about our steady state universe and no data, and, and then you ask the computer, well, what would happen if I removed the moon? or I shrunk the sun by half, it wouldn't, it could have a billion years worth of data, but wouldn't, but wouldn't know how to solve that problem. Is that, do you still disagree with it? I, th I think so, because I think, you know, if you've, if you sort of, you think of the, all this historical data as this, you know, starting off as this massive volume of, of unexplained numbers, right? It's, it's this huge data set. And, and the goal of, of artificial intelligence or of any of this kind of predictive modeling is to develop a, you know, a much more compact representation in a sort of information theoretic sense. You know, I want to come up with a formula that explains all this massive historical numbers. And if you come up with the right representation, and I think, 
you know, gravity or gravitational equations is a, you know, a form of that, then you could say, oh yeah, well, the way I explain where Mars is, is because I know where all these other things are. And I can tell that, you know, 10 minutes from now, they're going to move in a certain way because of this, you know, this set of equations. And that's this underlying pattern. So if you, if you figure out what that pattern is, then now you can say, oh yeah, well, if I delete the moon or, you know, shrink the sun, I could explore what would happen in this, you know, alternative universe and how things might, might change. And, you know, whether you really work that pattern out correctly, um, I don't know, but I've, I've certainly seen some interesting examples where people can do that on a small scale, right? You, you have a data set of a ball bouncing and where it is at different points in time and, and the machine can figure out that there's a formula that simplifies that data set. Um, well, let me ask it a different form of the question. Then I, I would love to get into specifics about the work you're doing. I, this whole idea, let's take a bunch of data about the past. Let's make projections in the future. I don't know how that gets you the Harry Potter series. I don't know how that gets you Lin-Manuel Miranda's Hamilton. Do you think it does, given enough books? Maybe there aren't enough books that have been written. But a million years from now, does that give you um, that level of complex creativity? Yeah, that's a super interesting question. I, and I don't, I mean, I don't know, you know, what the ultimate answer to that is, but I, I feel it's a little bit like the, the sort of enjoyment question that you asked about. You know, if you, you look at some of these generative additive networks that um, people are, are working on now, and it, it, it seems like, what you're really talking about is is kind of dreaming, right? It's like this thing of, I've built this representation of the world based on a whole bunch of past experience, which is unique to me and the observations I've made. And then I'm, I'm sort of dreaming about these simulated universes where I, you know, delete your moon or whatever it is. And some of these dreams are really interesting patterns that other people, you know, enjoy because for some reason they, you know, they resonate with the patterns that, that they've absorbed. And, you know, maybe far enough down the road, you you, you do get to a, a situation like that where, again, you have these generalized enough, um, you know, computers that are able to meaningfully kind of share their their representations of the world. You know, I think that's probably something that's missing now. You can't you can't take one chess program and have it, you know, share its explanation of how to play chess with another one because they operate in totally different kind of niches and representations of the world. Um, you know, but once you get to that point where you do have a, a way for these things to kind of communicate, maybe, you know, maybe you do get a, a Harry Potter of the, you know, of the AI world. So I do have actually two more questions along these lines. Then, then I do want to move on. My first one is when it comes to a general intelligence, um, the vast majority of guests on this show say, look, we don't know how to build it, but we know it's possible because people are machines. And if, if everything in you is mechanistic, then someday we'll build a me mechanistic, you know, we can duplicate. That's a, general intelligence is a mechanistic phenomenon. So do you agree with that statement that, um, the reason we believe we can make a general intelligence is because we fundamentally think our intelligence is mechanistic. Yeah, I, I don't really like to agree with that statement, but I kind of find myself 
having to kind of go down that path. You know, the more layers you peel back, the deeper you look, it, you know, it feels like all these processes are driven by, you know, fundamental physics and chemistry um, underneath. And yeah, it's, it's a complicated way that we've assembled, but we haven't, you know, we haven't been able to find the sort of Roger Penrose's, you know, unique thing. It, it, It makes us different from, from another machine. And so it, yeah, it does take you down this kind of uncomfortable path that, you know, first of all, everything is predetermined, right? Um, it, because we're all just operating according to the laws of physics and and also that we should be able to, you know, construct something that replicates the way we do things. Um, so I'm going to put you in the in the column of, of, of yes. Yeah. So I'm still at like 95% of people agree with, with that. <laughs> the other question I want to ask you is, I get almost a 50-50 split on this question. And it is, do you believe a general intelligence? Like we can do narrow, we have, we have machine learning. We can get it to solve certain tasks. And some people think we're just going to be able to solve bigger and more complicated tasks and then more and then more and then more. And eventually you kind of evolve your way gradually to this general intelligence. Other people say, no, we haven't even started working on a general intelligence. That basic idea, that basic structure of, let's take a bunch of data and just look for patterns in it and project them isn't actually, I mean, it's great, but it's not one step along the path to general intelligence. Which of those two camps would you, would you fall in? Yeah, I I think we're still, you know, at the only playing around the barest edges of that problem. You know, almost everything that, that people work on are immediately narrowed to a, you know, a very specific, kind of domain. Um, and I, I mean, I think some of the approaches are in the direction of that sort of generalized intelligence, um, you know, where we're not having to provide explicit training and we are able to, you know, develop these sort of patterns within a particular domain. But I don't think we've really made or tried to make a lot of progress on this this sort of general set of feedback me- mechanisms and representation that you would really need for a you know, a, a general intelligence. Well, even, even in a, even in a broad domain, like look at, at game playing, you know, have a machine that you can give it any board game and it'll figure out how to play it with you. I mean, it feels like we're a long way even from, from thinking about something like that. The funny thing is, is that when the, the original conference in 56 at Dartmouth, where they thought they could solve AI in a, in a, in a summer with hard work, uh, that was based on the idea that intelligence was probably just a handful of simple laws like the way physics is or electricity right. or magnetism. And, and then maybe that, or that doesn't seem to be the case. Um, so on, on to you and the fascinating work you're doing at Hopper for the people that uh, aren't familiar with Hopper, talk a little bit about Hopper's mission and then t- tell us some of the, of the AI problems you've tackled and uh, overcome or still working on or, or what have you, but share some of your experiences uh, working with large data sets there. Yeah. I, I mean, I think the, the mission at Hopper is really to help travelers make smarter decisions about um, their travel. So buying airfare and hotels, um, you know, as somebody who used to travel a lot as a, as a consultant, you know, it, it always felt to me like this was an industry that was pretty archaic and kind of broken in a lot of ways. 
and also one that had kind of evolved in a strange direction. You know, we've back in the old days, I guess, when I used to travel a lot, there was a person I could, I could call and would figure things out and call me back and, you know, save me a bunch of, of time and money, um, for the, you know, the privilege of charging me $25 a, a booking or something. And we kind of, as an industry, I think moved away and said, okay, we don't need travel agents. We can build these tools that let people make all their own decisions. But if you look at how people use them, you know, people spend hours online trying to figure out a flight to buy and then end up buying something and feeling bad about it. You know, that they, they didn't research enough or the price is going to change or they, you know, going to pay more than the person next to them. And so what we're trying to do at Hopper is, is kind of provide that advice to the, the consumer, ultimately recreating some of what that a great travel agent used to do for you, right? So somebody who's an expert in the domain, we watch all the historical data that we can find about prices and we help make suggestions to you about, first of all, just when to buy a ticket. You know, so when you look at the price, is it a good price? Is it likely to go down? Should you wait? Um, or even are there other options? You know, if you're looking for a, a beach vacation in February from Montreal, you probably don't care which island it is in the Caribbean. If we can get you somewhere cheaper um, and you have more, more money to spend at the bar or whatever you want to do on your, on your holiday. Um, so that, that's the, the vision of Hopper. Um, you know, we, we do all this on a mobile phone, so we have a, a great way to talk to our individual users about the, the trips that they're watching. And from a, a data science and AI point of view, the thing that's fascinating to me is the sort of the scale and complexity of the data. You know, we're, every day we collect something like 30 billion priced itineraries from airfare and hotel searches that people make all over the world. Um, it's all anonymous and it's, it's to us like, uh, think of a giant stock ticker on Times Square where we're seeing all these different trips that were available for sale at different points in time and, and what the, you know, the asking price was for that trip. Um, so it's a, it's a fascinating kind of marketplace. Um, the complexity comes because there's just so many things you can buy that if you, you think about all the different uh, itineraries you could purchase at any point in time, it's in the trillions. So, you know, imagine a, a Dow Jones where you have trillions of different stocks being traded. Uh, so even though we're seeing billions of prices every day, we don't know the price of most things most of the time. So it's a, it's a really interesting uh, kind of environment. And then how do you do prediction on top of that when you have this, this huge volume of, of time series that are sparse, um, but obviously correlated to each other in really interesting ways. So help me understand, like, how do you deal with that? What do you do? Do you, um, okay. If, so the way you set the problem up is there's too many different uh, fares that you can't kind of know them all at once. And so like, how do you use AI to solve that problem? Yeah. So I think, you know, where we started, I think the way, the way I always start with these problems, we start small, start looking at, at individual kind of examples. Um, we started by creating a whole set of, uh, of relatively uh, traditional statistical models for describing um, explainable features of, of travel prices. So for example, if you look at the price of a, a ticket the same time last year, it tends to be similar to, to what it is this year. There's a very predictable kind of seasonal variation. Um, there's also a really interesting 
variation with advanced purchase. So how far ahead of the flight you are when you're, you're going to buy a ticket or, or book your hotel, um, w- which is a function of the, the strange economics of the industry. The, the people who are willing to pay the most for, for tickets and hotels are business travelers who don't know they want the thing until a few days beforehand. So that the challenge with the, the airlines and the hotel companies is to sell enough of their uh, inventory to make sure the, the, the flight or the hotel is going to be full, but save enough that they can sell at, you know, two, three, or even 10 times the price at the last minute. So that means there's a, tends to be a predictable variation with how far in advance you are. Um, it's, there's lots of interesting variation by, by market. For example, if you're flying, you know, from New York to, to Honolulu, prices don't tend to rise very much at the last minute because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's not a place where a business person is going to go and um, set up a meeting two days beforehand. But if you're flying from New York to Chicago, you're going to pay much more at the last minute. So, you know, these sort of predictable variations are things that we can study and, and model in, in aggregate. Um, on top of that, there's really interesting volatility that we look at. So the way that that prices vary over time, how much they bump up and down as airlines try to, you know, maximize their revenue or hotels try to, you know, make sure all those rooms are going to be filled, we we can kind of predict that. So we we end up with this huge multidimensional time series prediction problem. Um, Part of it is, is, is creating all these aggregates and then synthesizing models on top of that, which allow us to to kind of predict the central trend. Um, and then that really allows us to make these estimates of how likely it is that uh, a future price is going to be better than today. You know, our, our goal is actually not to predict exactly what the price is going to be tomorrow. It's to tell the user, you know, should I buy it now or should I wait because it's going to drop? And so we want to know, you know, how confidently um, we can make that prediction. Um, so in that example you gave about the Honolulu last minute is cheaper than the New York to Chicago last minute, is that a person at each airline who makes that determination? Are they also just using models to try to maximize, because they want to maximize um, total revenue for the flight, and they can exactly. sell a few tickets at the last minute for a bunch or a bunch of tickets beforehand cheap. So is, are they just using pure automated models and you're trying to like not, and, and you're kind of studying the solar system like we were talking about before, the orbits of the planets and making predictions on that. Or are there people that uh, kind of do that manually? No, that's a great, that's a great example, a, a, a great question. And that, that analogy is really good that it, Historically, it was all done by people. You know, there are market managers at the airlines and they're responsible for, you know, a few routes and, you know, they would set these prices. In fact, way back in history, these prices were all regulated. Um, Nowadays, it's mostly done by computers. So in some sense, it's, uh, you know, it's like an example of algorithmic trading where the the sellers are all using this army of computers to, to kind of optimize their prices. And as a consumer, you're up against this army of machines and, and we're trying to help you kind of predict what their machines are gonna are gonna say there are there are still some examples where people are involved and particularly th- those are interesting for extreme prices so sales for example are things that are often 
triggered by people. You know, the airline will decide they're doing a marketing campaign or they want to meet a quarterly goal or something. So they'll put a bunch of flights on sale. And so even that, although it's, it's started by a person, it has some predictability. You know, we find that these sales tend to start, um, you know, on, on Mondays and Tuesdays because it's when people come into the office and make these decisions about, you know, overriding the machine. Um, so yeah, there, there's definitely a combination. It's mostly computers, um, but there's a little bit of a human element in there. Um, it, it, you know, and that's what helps us to, to be able to make these predictions fairly accurately. Um, although there's, you know, there's many, many um, nuances that I think we're, we're only just beginning to, to uncover in the sort of the, the laws of gravity, if you want to take that analogy. So there's something on the order of 100,000 flights a day, right? Yep. And you can buy 331 days in advance on my airlines. You're looking at something like 33 million flights in a year. How do you get from 33 million to your trillions? And I guess there's three classes of service. That gets me to, um, what was that, 33 million times three, now I'm up to 100 million. How do you step function up to the trillions you were talking about? What are the other dimensions I'm, I'm missing in that analysis? Yeah, so the, the really interesting thing is that the, the suppliers, the airlines are thinking in terms of, of flights, right? And as you say, there's not that many flights that fly every day of the order of 100,000. And there's only about 15,000 city pairs that are directly connected by flights. But the way consumers buy travel is by trips, right? So you might be wanting to fly from, you know, Wichita in Kansas to Vladivostok in, in Russia. And there are, there is no flight that goes there. You have to buy a combination ah. of, you know, three or four different flights on the outbound and another three or four flights on the return. Um, obviously a lot of those combinations are rare, but as soon as you allow, um, connections and, and return trips, you know, you're, you're, you're squaring and squaring this numbers, um, several times, which is how you get to the, you know, the trillions of, uh, of options. And if you think about an itinerary as a combination of, you know, even up to three or four connected outbound legs plus three or four connected return legs within, you know, the next, both of the next year between something like. 2,000 distinct airports um, around the world, it's, it's easy to get to those big numbers. And, and it's obviously a long tail, right? But, um, but yeah, there's a lot. And so the data you have to feed your models with are historic data of what, do you in the end know what the ticket actually sold for in the end? Or do you just know what price it was offered at in the end? Yeah, we just see the quote. So it's it's the, right. the stock ticker analogy is, is pretty good. It's basically that the the airline the airline that was willing to sell a combination of flights, they give a, a quote as to how much they would sell it for at a particular point in time. And and even that the the problem of deciding whether there is a valid itinerary that an airline will sell is an interesting mathematical problem in itself. It's it's not a simple marketplace where you know, all these products are listed and there's a price tag. It's a, an actual calculation to figure out how you can combine different flights together to get to a, a ticket price, which, which is actually a super clever mechanism invented back in the 70s or the 60s to let, you know, travel agents with a price book and a pencil work out the price of these probably billions of itineraries at that time. Um, you know, as, a, as opposed to 
nowadays, anybody who was building a marketplace like this would do it in a different way. So it's a, it's a sort of interesting, archaic thing. So you're, you have like bunches of users using this, right? Yeah, yeah. And do you have like a network effect that you achieve as, as you get more? Because you in the end do know what people on your platform spent, don't you or not? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, so that, I mean, this, the place where it all started is we were looking at all this external data about pricing, but then we're on the user side, we build this really interesting network of, of how people uh, purchase flights and how people interact with flights. And, and because we, you know, we're a mobile app, we actually have a really good understanding of, of who the people are that, that generate all these different searches, which allows us to do some, you know, some really interesting things in terms of, you know, first of all, aggregating lots of demand so that, you know, we know certain users are flying from New York to the Caribbean for a, you know, vacation. And if they're flexible, which many of our users are, you know, we potentially can steer them towards uh, a particular destination that might be cheaper, right? So we can do interesting matching between supply and demand. Um, The other thing that's really interesting is to watch how users interact with multiple destinations. So, you know, if you can imagine somebody flying from New York to the Barbados, uh, also search for a flight to the Bahamas, right? So that gives us a signal that those two destinations, even though they're far apart, are, are related in some way. And, and that allows us to make these interesting, you know, alternative recommendations. So you as a user search for Barbados, but we see Bermuda's cheap, then we might recommend that to you. Um, but it, there's a lot of subtlety even in that. You know, we look, for example, at our offices are split between Boston and Montreal. And, and if you look at how people search for Europe from Boston, um, you know, there, there's a, a lot of sort of a amorphous blob of destinations in Europe, right? People are trying to go to Europe. They don't care so much if it's Rome or, or Paris or London or, or whatever. They're, they're doing this, this European trip. Whereas if you look at how people in Montreal think about Europe, uh, it, you know, it's very distinct, particularly inside France, right? It's very different flying from Montreal to Paris versus flying Montreal to Lyon, right? Whereas for someone from Boston, they probably wouldn't care. Right. There's a lot more um, substitutability, I guess, is what I'm saying. So there's these really interesting patterns in terms of where people live, where people are traveling. And and we can use that to help make, you know, smarter recommendations to people, depending on what their particular flexibility might be. That is fascinating. Um, That is fascinating. So it's a lot like Amazon suggesting this product to buy, like, yeah, oh, you want to fly exactly. um, from Boston to Bahamas? Then maybe you'd rather fly to, uh, anyway, the Grand Cayman or something. Well, yeah, wonderful. So the, the app is Hopper. It's all app-based, right? It is, yes. And I guess it's on all, all appropriate platforms and et cetera, where it fine is. apps are sold? Yes, exactly. And um, what about you, Patrick? You're a fascinating guy. How can people keep up with what you're doing and working on and noodling about? Yeah, I'm just Patrick Surrey at, at Twitter. Um, I, I'm also easy to reach at Hopper. I'm just Patrick at Hopper. Um, and yeah, I, I spend a lot of time thinking about these problems and going around talking. I'm certainly interested in, um, you know, in, in feedback and other people who are looking at these large scale 
kind of market and recommendation systems. I think there's a bunch of fascinating things. Uh, and as I say, you know, I feel like we've only really scratched the surface of the, you know, this, this huge data set that we're exploring and all these correlations that are buried inside it. Well, thank you for being on the show. I appreciate it. Thanks very much. Great to talk to you. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.